0: It is that time of year again uh, when uh, many of us have rest and relaxation on our minds, right? And we can't wait for that vacation, we long for some rest, a new routine a little bit, and uh, you know, I really desire that uh, for us as a church family as well. Well, I really uh, want this summer to be a summer of rest and refreshment for for us to really uh, reconnect with the Lord this summer. Um, But speaking of rest, I would submit this morning that there is a type of rest that we need that no vacation can ever satisfy Right? Not even a vacation to the most desired vacation destination uh, out there. You know, like Not even a hammock in Hawaii with a nice cold Dr. Pepper in your hand can satisfy. Type of rest. We're talking about a rest of the soul. And how our souls need rest. Many people um, today live with a deep-seated angst. And anger, and just a, a restless stirring in their hearts because they're searching. You know, they're 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 restless in their their souls uh, for something to satisfy them, something that's going to bring them joy and satisfaction and happiness and meaning and freedom in life. And so, this morning, we're going to ask the question: Where can our souls find rest? And we're going to answer it from Matthew chapter eleven, verses twenty-eight. Uh, through 30 primarily, and uh, we're going to look at several um, yokes that that weigh us down, that make us weary, that do not provide the satisfaction that our souls are looking for, and so uh, just to give us some context as we turn uh, to Matthew chapter 11, this is the great turning point in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew chapter 11 uh, through 13, um, it's at this point that John... At this point, John, Jesus, and his disciples have thoroughly preached the gospel of the kingdom to national Israel. Uh, They have heard the good news, but uh, they were just too busy for him. They didn't want him, they rejected him, and so it's like that parable... Uh, that Jesus spoke, you know, everybody's got doing their own thing. They got to go check out their, you know, their new tractors, oxen. They got to go check out their new land they bought. They just got married, you know, and, and so Jesus says invite everybody else to come in, right? All the poor, the needy, the blind, the lame, the beggars, anybody who's needy. That's the point in the gospel that we're at, really. Um, they have rejected Christ. They've committed the unpardonable sin. They've rejected uh, they don't believe that he's the Christ, the Messiah, even though through, um, through Jesus' miracles and through the miracles that the disciples did throughout all the land of Israel uh, for the lost sheep in the house of Israel, uh, they've just said, no, no thank you. We've, they've rejected Christ as their Messiah, and Jesus has now just got done condemning cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida. And, and now he turns, he's turning from this national kingdom message to Israel, and he's turning to everybody now, and he starts to turn to the Gentiles even. And it is, he, he offers an invitation to all, personally now, individually, to come to him. Anybody who will. So, um, you've heard of the Great Commission, right? This is the great invitation we see here. So, verse 28, Jesus says... Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, uh, kind of an oxymoron, right? What kind of yoke is easy and light? Well, Christ's is. And so he invites the weary and the burdened to uh, come to him in these verses. And it's a really famous, uh, well-known passage, right? It's cherished because we see in, in it the gentle shepherd heart of Jesus. We see how he cares about the weary. He cares about the burdened, the needy, the outcast, the poor, the desperate. Um, in verses 25 through 27, which I would have loved to expound it for us this morning, but I just didn't have time, he talks about the infants. Right There's the wise and the intelligent people who don't see their need of Jesus. They're wise in their own eyes, really. Uh, it's the religious leaders, the people who have their own righteousness. They don't need Jesus. Uh, and then he says, "There's the in contrast to the wise and intelligent, there's the infants. The people who realize their need of Jesus, their complete dependence upon Jesus, Jesus uh for everything and they're they're weary they're burdened, they know within themselves that they don't have it you know what I'm saying they don't they don't they they don't have the answers they don't have the righteousness that they need they so they're looking and they're we they're they're burdened and uh so specifically the weary and the burden in this context are most specifically those People who are weighed down by a yoke that the Jewish religious leaders are placing upon them. Uh, and Jesus wants to exchange that yoke for his yoke, which is easier and lighter. And we all I think most of us are familiar with what a yoke is. A yoke is something that you might put on the shoulders of some beasts of burden, you know, like uh, like oxen. And they would pull the plow or they would pull some type of equipment, and um Apparently, being yoked today, Jacob reminded me this week, is that uh, being yoked is slang, apparently, for like being stacked. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you're ripped. Um, oh, that guy's yoked, right? But I thought that was hilarious. But um, <laughs> Jesus uses yoke metaphorically as well. Um, because a yoke, in Jesus' day, meant to become a disciple of some teacher or some rabbi. Um, you take that ra- that rabbi's teaching upon yourself. Uh, you're gonna learn how to do life from this rabbi, and so um, in rabbinic Judaism, actually, um, making a yoke as heavy as possible was a good thing. It was a demonstration of your your piety, right? This is how religious. Look at how religious I am. So. Um, Basically, Jesus is saying to the crowds, come to me, take my yoke instead of the heavy, weary, religious yoke of these spiritual leaders. Um, And what made the yoke of the people heavy in this day was primarily two things going on. Number one, the law of Moses, and number two, the oral law. Uh, but mostly the oral law in this context, which the rabbis promised, again, if you just keep this yoke, you just keep the minutia of the law, which is not really the law anymore, it was the oral law, we'll get into that, but you would find rest if you just kept the minutiae of their teachings. And so, but first, let's look at, we're going to look at several yokes today. The first yoke we're looking at is the yoke of the law of Moses. Um, this is, you know, most of us are familiar with the law of Moses, it's the law code that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai for Israel to keep in accordance with the Old Covenant. Um, it contained the Ten Commandments and the National Law Code uh, for Israel. And uh, while there was a sacrificial system that came with it, right? So if you, if you sinned, if you fell short, you could go off for a sacrifice, right? Um, it was still di- it was difficult to keep, uh, I think Paul explains the experience of a Jew living under the law in Romans chapter 7. You remember how he describes that struggle of man within himself, right? He wants to do good, but he can't, and that what I want to do, I don't. What I don't want to do, I'm doing. And so that's what it was like for the Jew, uh, really, most specifically, living under the law. It was depicted as a life of defeat. It's a life of defeat. Who will set me free from this body of death, Paul said. And, and he reminds us in there, it's not that the law was wrong. The law is holy, righteous, and good, right? The problem wasn't with the law, it was with us. It's with our sin. We're, we're sinners by nature. And so, basically, the law just made sin worse, you know? It just made things worse for us because uh, now you're transgressing the law. You're not just sinning, you're transgressing it. And it just seemed to like, the more he heard the word no, don't do this, don't do that, it's kind of like your kids, right? The more you want to do that, the more you're just thinking about it. And so um, in Acts 15, and what many consider the first church council, Peter called the law a yoke that neither we nor our forefathers were able, able to bear. And so why would you dare put this on the Gentiles too, who are being added to the number? That was the big uh, discussion there. But uh, the second yoke is the yoke of the oral law. And by the way, I'm going to announce this a little early, but in August, I plan on going into the book of Romans, and we'll talk about that more, the law and all of that. And I'm just getting fired up about it. But uh, let's look at the yoke of the oral law now. The oral law is something that we need to get a handle on if we're going to understand the Gospels and we're going to understand Jesus' interactions with the Jewish leaders in them. Uh, this law, and I'm putting that in quotation marks in your notes, it was something that wasn't written down. Okay? It's, it's oral, it's spoken, it's communicated through maybe repetition or memorization. We might actually look at it like a cultural code of conduct. You just do these things and you p- keep passing it down. It's the oral law. And um, uh, in our journey through the book of Mark, we often called the oral law... The 613 fence remember this because uh, sometimes it's referred to as the fence they called it the fence uh, you don't see that in scripture but in extra biblical writings but writings outside the bible but for each of the 613 original laws or commands in the law of moses uh, they had come up with more laws to keep you from breaking the original 613 laws Right, so here's God's law right here. This is the fence. And to keep you from breaking this fence and transgressing this law, we're going to come up with some more laws to keep you from even getting close to God's fence. You know what I'm saying? So they had all these oral laws now, man-made fence, and so the people are now not concerned with God's law. They're concerned with breaking the oral laws now. I mean, a lot of them probably didn't even know what God's law was anymore. Because they're so concerned with the religious traditions and teachings in the oral law that they had come up with. And um, that's why when Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders, why aren't you keeping these rituals that we keep? What does he say? He says, have you not read? (laughs) You know, he takes them back to scripture. He says, it is written Over and over and over, he's just going back to God's word. And look at this. um, Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 9 and verse 13 says this. uh, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts far from me, and in vain do they worship me. Uh, Teaching, here's the thing, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. And so you see that by adding to God's word, They've invalidated God's word. They've replaced it. They've subverted it. And now they're just following man's word. And it, guys, it had become a terrible burden because wasn't the law enough. It was already difficult, but now you've got all these man-made laws that God's not even placing on them, but the religious leaders are, and you've got to keep up with all this minutiae. So the spiritual conditions in Israel during the time of Jesus could be described as exhausting. That's the one word I would use to describe it. It is just flat out exhausting, trying to keep up with the law, with the oral law. I mean, people were just trying to be good enough, trying to measure up, trying to meet the standards, only to fall short time and time again, and they knew it deep down that they were not good enough. And those are the people that Christ is reaching out to, the people who know they're not good enough. They're the infants, the ones who come to Christ in childlike faith saying, I need you, I need you, and I know I need you. So um, if you keep reading, in Matthew 12, you see an example of this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders regarding the oral law. Um, And I'm just going to summarize it for us. Jesus and the disciples, remember, they're out uh, walking on the Sabbath day, and they're walking through some grain fields. And, uh, hey, Jacob, can you go get that cup out of my office real quick? I forgot about this. But, um, Jesus and the disciples, they're, they're walking through the grain fields. They're picking heads of grain, and they're eating it on the Sabbath, right? And so, according to the law of Moses, that is perfectly fine. You can, you can pick some grain. You can eat it. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not doing anything wrong. Um, But according to uh, Pharisaic tradition, uh, that was considered harvesting. Thanks, brother. We'll get to this in a little bit. But um, the law said you couldn't go into your grain fields, right, and harvest with a sickle. You know what I mean? Store up grain. You couldn't do any ordinary work. But Pharisaic tradition viewed the disciples and Jesus plucking this grain and eating it as harvesting. They said, you guys are working. It's like, no, they weren't. It was totally fine. But here's what they, they would say. They were breaking the oral law several times. They said, by just plucking the grain uh, from its stock that they were reaping, And then by rubbing, like, you think of a piece of wheat, rubbing it in their hands, they were threshing, so they're working again. By separating the grain from the chaff, they were guilty of winnowing, right? You're blowing away the chaff and eating the grain. And then the whole process, in the whole process, they were guilty of preparing a meal on the Sabbath. Um, Just several ways that they had broken the oral law. Um, If you were walking along a grain field and you brushed up against some grain, and it fell to the ground, you were guilty of harvesting grain. I mean, if you spit on the ground and then you accidentally stepped in it, you were making mud, you were working. Um, it, it was just, it was outlandish. It was out of this world. People were counting their steps, right? Making sure that they didn't go too far. Like, they had people counting their steps uh, You see that today too in some Jewish quarters. Actually, in some uh, Jewish quarters today, um, uh, it's it's very much like this. It's still the same thing. Uh, There's a cable around the city over there in Jerusalem. Like you can only go so far Uh, if you like. They won't drive on the Sabbath because that's starting a fire in the engine. You know, you're working there, and uh, if you drive through some precincts, some some of these areas, some of the really really orthodox, conservative. Places, they'll start to stone your car if you drive through there on the Sabbath. Um, you, you just can't do anything. So, I mean, there was a, I've told you several times about this probably in our journey through Mark, but, you know, there was a, a Jewish family in Brooklyn whose house burned down. They perished in a fire because it was considered working just to unplug a hot plate. They wouldn't unplug a hot plate on the Sabbath because it was considered work, and so the house burned down, the children, everything. So, that's, exhausting right you basically couldn't do anything anymore and yet what what's the sabbath shabbat what does it mean it basically means to stop to rest but now instead of finding rest and refreshment on the sabbath it had become the most burdensome day of the week for people it was not a day of rest you had to go to work just to get some rest from the sabbath um but guys uh this is why Jesus calls them out uh, for, for laying heavy burdens on people Matthew 23: four he said, "Woe unto you, because you tie up and lay on men 's shoulders burdens, but you yourselves aren't willing to move so much as a finger. You know, so they were laying burdens on people, but they themselves weren't doing exactly what they said. I didn't do it as I say, not as I do, type of thing but um, before we pick on these uh, Jews too much, um, let's, let's think about all the churches out there who have man-made religious observances, catechisms, doctrines, and rituals that have no umbilical cord attached to the scriptures, if you know what I'm saying. It's men's traditions. Men came up with this stuff, not God. And there's a lot of people out there underneath religious rituals and observances unnecessarily. And so that's why it's so important to stay in the Scriptures and stick to the Scriptures, right? As soon as you start to elevate tradition, and you can say our tradition's only equal with Scripture, what's going to come before the Scripture? Right? You've, you've entirely you've subverted the word of God by your traditions. It's inevitable. You cannot not invalidate God's word when you start to set up man's word. But uh, to better understand how burdensome their yoke was, and just to give you a little insight into the first century world of Jesus, I want to compare uh, Matthew 7, or sorry, Mark 7, uh, 1 through 5 with the Mishnah. And uh, the Mishnah is the first major work of rabbinic literature that came out about 200 a.d and uh, it basically records a lot of the minutiae that was going on in the there there's several sections or they call them cedars we might call them tractates or orders that relate to things like the Sabbath, what you can and can't do on the Sabbath, or can or can't do with agriculture and holidays and these different purity rituals. And uh, even though it's written, you know, 150, 170 years after Christ, there's still a lot of uh, information in it that tells us what was going on in the Jesus' day in these debates between Jesus and the religious leaders. Look at uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. With me? Mark 7, verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came from Jerusalem and saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they completely cleanse themselves, right? Because they've been around Gentiles. Um, And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders? Notice they didn't say, why don't you guys walk in accordance with the law? It was the tradition of the elders they were concerned about. Uh, But they eat their bread with unholy hands. And so this is where Jesus actually goes into that that, uh, speech about you guys are hypocrites. And he quotes Isaiah saying you're, you're teaching his commandments of men, the precepts of God, and how they've replaced the word of God. But, uh, you know, these guys, they weren't concerned with hygiene here when it talks about washing their hands. They have, they're they not using soap, okay? Um, they're not concerned about that. Uh, they might use soap to get the dirt off their hands before they wash, so there's nothing that comes into contact between, you know, the water and their hands. But they're concerned about ritual washings. Um, they're just man-made religious rituals that they had taken and, and blown up, right? So, In the law, there were some sort of cleansing rituals, a few, that the priests would undergo, um, but it wasn't for the everyday people to do, but they had taken it and made it an everyday thing for everyday people, and it became just meticulous, right? They were meticulous about it, and they were mad that Jesus and his disciples weren't meticulous about it. And you see two things mentioned there, um, number one, that they compl- completely cleanse themselves. They are doing ritual immersion baths, and they're concerned with a hand washing. Those are the two big ones I want to focus on. Um, concerning ritual immersion, I mean, if you go to Jerusalem today, you're going to see um, many stepped ritual baths that you could step down into, uh, like the one in the picture back there. That are, they were often cut into the, the bedrock And they're called mikvoth, mikvoth, like plural. That's how you would say it. If you were going to refer to a a one ritual bath, it would be a mikvah. So mikvah and mikvoth. And in a Jewish person's home, be it 200 BC before Christ, right? 200 years before Christ, or be it um, today, you actually might find a mikvah in their home for all of these centuries, They're not really much different than the baptismals that we find, like like in the Byzantine period. You have steps that you walk down into where they would practice or do ritual immersion, like baptisms. Um, They might, uh, on the mikvah, they might have a divider in the middle of the steps where you would walk down into it and then you could walk out the other side and there'd be a wall between you and the unclean person so you didn't come into contact with The unclean and the clean. But um, there's supposedly some 700 of these that have been uncovered in Israel in recent decades, probably the last 50 years. Uh, 200 of them are in Jerusalem alone. Uh, There's more than 50, upwards of 60 mikvoth within a stone's throw of the Temple Mount. And uh, 10 of them at Qumran alone, that's the site of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And some of these uh, might not have been used for ritual immersion. They might have been used for water storage. But they do demonstrate for us just how important ritual immersion was for these Jews. And I think it explains a lot of you know, where our baptisms came about. Ritual, It's uh, not a ritual, but immersion baptism came about. Right? It kind of sprang out of Judaism, and this that was all that was going on. Of course, we only get baptized once, right? But they were doing it over and over and over again. And um, so uh, there's an entire tractate, actually, in the Mishnah on how to use the mikvah. And it's just its terribly burdensome right the things that you can and you can't do and how much water you can add i mean it's just little sips of water you can add to it because you wanted these to be filled with guess guess what living water is what they wanted them to be filled with living water which meant water from the sky or from a stream and so they didn't want uh, man adding to these by hand Um, it had to come from god you know the water did but uh gives you a little insight into the new testament right Living waters. Um, but um, there's also a, a section in the Mishnah called Yadayim, uh, which basically just means hands. And you had to be very meticulous about how you washed your hands. And, and you can see one of the hand washing stations right there at the western wall in that uh, picture there. But let's actually read the Mishnah this morning, uh, interestingly enough. But uh, this is the very first verse. And in this section, it says a minimum, you needed to wash your hands, a minimum of a quarter of a log of water must be poured over the hands for one person and even for two. A minimum of a half a log must be poured over the hands for three or four persons. A minimum of one log is sufficient for five, ten, or a hundred person. And then Rabbi Yose says, as long as there is not less than a quarter of a log left for the last person among them. More water may be added to the second water, but more may not be added to the first water. Did you guys get that? Nice and clear, right? Clear as mud. Maybe that's what you're working with when you're trying to figure out how to wash your hands properly so that God will accept you. You know, um, if you're like me, you're wondering what a log is. I looked at one uh, commentator on the Mishnah. Uh, He said this. A log is about a half a liter of water, and... uh, so a quarter of a log it's talking about there would be about 100 grams of water so you have to make sure you cover your hand with 100 grams of water which is a third of a can of coke the commentator says for those who drink that stuff so i just i really enjoy that commentator but uh he had some fun with it but pretty labor-intensive right making sure you got the right amount poured over your hands Uh, many jews today are required to wash their hands after they leave a cemetery, um, at the, uh, when they wake up in the morning, before you wake up in the morning, you would wash your hands. Before you even get out of bed, before you even stand up, you'd have like a bowl of water beside your bedside and with a cup, and you wash your hands. Or if you're going to have a meal that includes bread in the Mishnah, so you're going to eat bread and with a meal, you've got to wash your hands. And don't you see that in the New Testament right there in Mark chapter 7? They're eating bread without washing their hands. And uh, uh, this is a ritual they called netilat uh, yadayim. And uh, uh, basically, to, to do it, you would make sure that your hands are already clean. You would make sure that you take your, you know, you take your rings off so that nothing comes into contact between your hands and, and the water. And then you would take a cup like this that's got two handles, and you'll pick it up with your dominant hand, your right hand, if you're right-handed, and then you would pass it to your left hand. And then you would take this and you would pour it twice up to the joint. And people, some people wonder what the joint's talking about. Is it this joint, my finger joint? Is it the wrist joint? They don't really know. But you pour it on your hand twice. And if you're Hasidic, there's certain orthodox customs, you can do it three times. And then you would take it and you would pass it to your right hand. You grab the other handle and you pour it two, three times on your left hand. And then you put it down And then you'd hold your hands up, chest high, and you would say uh, a prayer. You'll recite a prayer. Um, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of hands. So notice that they don't understand that this is not prescribed by God. They look at it as prescribed by God. But again, I mean, it's all just man-made ritual. And it's, it's kind of sad when you think about it doing this all the time uh, there was one nba player i was i was looking at who has jewish friends and so he put in his house um a hand washing station and a mikvah in his house so that his jewish friends could come over and they wouldn't have to leave to do their thing you know and there's a synagogue in their house but um just terribly burdensome there was different degrees of uncleanness uh you didn't know uh, by the way, if you want one of these, you just go on Amazon. You can get one for about 10 bucks. I know you guys are all interested. So that's where that comes from. But uh there's different degrees of uncleanness, and they debate it constantly um, what they have to do. Different rabbi says this, another rabbi says says that. Um in one um section they're they're concerned about uh just uh, having an external in some cases you had to have you couldn 't do it yourself you had to have someone pour water on your hands someone or something you have to have an external power source pour water on your hands uh, here 's what Yodim one five says it says all are fit to pour water over the hands, even a deaf mute, an imbecile, or a minor. A person may place the jug between his knees and pour over the, pour out the water or he may turn the jug on its side and pour it out. It even says this, a monkey may pour water over the hands, but Rabbi Jose declares these two latter cases invalid. Right? And then you, see, you get to the end of it, and you start to see like certain scriptures maybe would make your hands defiled. And there's debates between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just like you see in the New Testament. But I just show you this, guys, because I think it gives us insight into the first-century world of Jesus and into the Gospels, and the heavy yoke that people were bearing. And it's only a small sample, isn't it, of the religious yokes that are out there. Many of you, like me, you know what it's like to come out of a system that is loaded with man-made traditions and observances and rituals that just have zero to do with the Word of God. And it's frustrating, because it's, it's a wreck on people's conscience, isn't it? On your conscience. It's a wreck on some of your family, your friends are trapped in some of these systems. And you just want them to come to that realization that Jesus paid it all. Uh, they're fully accepted in him. And not by what they do. Every religion out there that's not authentic Christianity will tell you do, right? Do and keep doing. But Jesus says to come because it's, it's done. Right? I've paid the price. And if we don't understand the gospel, we're not grounded in the gospel of God's grace that Jesus paid it all on the cross. Even a believer is susceptible to get sucked into some sort of religious tradition in the name of Christ. That carries the name of Christ, but doesn't understand the gospel. Um, The yoke of religion is always going to leave you without assurance of salvation. It's going to keep you working. It's going to keep you trying to be good enough. And it's always going to you're always going to be filled with guilt because the work never stops. And then there's some other yokes that we want to look at real quickly. Um, Yokes that we can place on ourselves that are unnecessary, but let's think about just the yoke of stuff. The yoke of stuff, the trying to find happiness in the things of the world. Materialism, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Um, sometimes the more stuff you have, though, right, the more it owns you. And uh, I can't help but think about uh, some vacations. <laughs> Since it's that time of year, a lot of people are going to go on vacation looking for rest in vacations, a rest that only Jesus can provide. See, we, sometimes we look, we make devices, we create devices, broken cisterns, we're looking to satisfy the ultimate rest that we need. Right? Our souls are restless and we think if I just have this or I just have that or if I just go on this vacation that I've saved up all year long and it's only two weeks, right? That's going to be the best vacation ever. If I just get to go on this vacation, then I'll be at rest. Then it'll satisfy me, right? Because my travel guide said so. This is the best place you can go. But there's certain things, this is the world, the world just cannot satisfy that inner restlessness that we have and by the way some rest some vacations right if they can just be even more work right if we don't plan them right think about that uh, i was studying for this preparing for this and i thought what are the statistics on vacation's actually being counterproductive. You know, there's a lot of people out there that can't deal with the details and the travel and the different things, right? If I go to the city, I know it's a bad vacation, but I need to get on creation. But um, some of these things, like some vacations actually stress you out more and you have to go back to work just to get a break. But, uh, and some personalities uh, work that way more than others, but that's something to think about, right? Be careful when you plan a vacation that it's not producing the opposite effect. But let's think about the yoke of sin, uh, the fourth yoke. Many think that by throwing off all moral restraints, we're just going to throw off restraints, we're going to pretend like God doesn't exist, then we'll be free. I'm going to throw off this yoke of morals that God's placed on me, right? And I'm going to act like he doesn't exist. Well, on the contrary, when you do that, you're not free, you just become a slave of sin. Uh, a slave of unrighteousness. You lose control of yourself and you end up destroying your life. In many cases, sin is self-destructive. A, a man is not free from sin any more than a fish is free when it's out of the water laying on the beach. Right? We're not free from sin any more than a tree uprooted is free from the soil. You know, We're not any more free than a train that's derailed. I mean... When, when we put on yoke, the yoke of Christ, it's like the train finally gets back on its tracks and it does what it's made to do. Then it's really free. Uh, it's interesting. The soul is free only when it's living in obedience to its creator and we're doing what we were made to do. Um, and so the yoke of sin is ultimately shackling and self-destructive. Uh, the yoke of self is the next one. Uh, and what I mean by that is that we think that by living for ourselves and for our agenda that we're going to be free and we're going to be satisfied. We're going to find happiness there. Um, and when we're there, we're also going to operate in the fear of man and we're going to try to please everybody because it's all about me again and how I look, how I feel. And so we're just living for ourselves all the time. And it's really idolatry, right? But when you are Lord of your life, When you're living for yourself, you think that you're going to be free, but you end up terribly frustrated and angry. You know why? Because there's other people that are trying to live for themselves too, right? (laughs) So you end up butting up against other gods. You're one of them, and so is that other person. And there's friction, like a husband and a wife trying to live for themselves, and they're conflicting. And then um, you just got things that happen to you that are out of your control, things that come in, and they wreck Your plan for your life. You know what I mean? A sickness, a death, a whatever it is. It just uh, maybe you lose your job. You're always going to be frustrated when you're under that yoke of self. Real rest comes when you submit to Christ as Lord and you take His yoke and you say, Lord, what's your plan for my life? Um, You trust Him when things don't go your way. Because it's not about you, it's about Christ, how you can serve him, how you can serve others. So you don't have to get so upset when things don't go your way, because you're not the one calling the shots. But the last one is the yoke of Jesus that we want to look at. Um, In a religious and empty, exhausting world, Jesus invites us to come find rest in him. Rest in Him. Do you notice that He doesn't say come and rest; He says come and find rest in Me. Not in a church, not in a creed, not in an observance. He says come find rest in Me. You have to come to Christ if you want rest. Uh, Hebrews nine fourteen says no more to the the dead religious works. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So come to Christ, don't come to religion, right? Because he's the one who can rest your conscience from the guilt, from the shame, In Christ, we find immediate salvation, rest. The moment that we come to Christ. That's the rest that he's offering, is salvation, rest. In Christ, we don't keep working. You know what I'm saying? We we come and we rest. It's not about works, because we know we're accepted. In Christ, we stand in His grace. We have been accepted. We don't have to try to be good enough. I hope that's good news for you this morning, if you've never heard it before. We don't longer have to try to appease God by religious works, trying to be good enough. We know He paid it all. And you know what? His Spirit sets us free from the law and from sin. So you can actually start to live, as Romans puts it. You can really live. No condemnation in Christ. We can worship, we can serve like we were created to do, and we can do it with joy because through the gospel and the spirit of God that's been given to us, we have new hearts that delight in obeying God. Right? The law has been written on our hearts. And John says his commands aren't burdensome anymore. Isn't that awesome? Totally different motivations before and after Christ for everything we do. We have rest for our souls because even though, you know, we don't have anything, even if you don't have anything in this world and it's all stripped away and you're like Job, and you're just laying there, and no family, no health, no nothing, no money, no possessions, even though everything is stripped away, you have Jesus Christ, and you can be satisfied. Isn't that good news this morning? It's good to be reminded of that. And as we come to the communion table this morning, let's remind ourselves that this is not some empty religious work. Um... This is a time of repentance and celebration. And so in repentance, let's just repent this morning of the yokes that we have taken upon ourselves. Even if you're a Christian, you can start to look to the world to satisfy you start to find rest in different things. And we remind ourselves in repentance this morning that only Jesus can satisfy. And we take our idols back down off the shelf and we put them in proper place, even if that idol is us and um, secondly we celebrate because ah, jesus paid it all that's what this reminds us of this isn't a work that we do to try to be good enough it's a uh, practice that makes us look back and reminds us of christ's sufficiency